Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 310, The English College. Before we start, let me warn you that Intelligent Speech is back. Intelligent Speech is an online conference dedicated to connecting the best independent educational content creators with their listeners. And this year's conference takes place on April 24th, 10am Eastern Time or 3pm Greenwich Mean Time. This year, I will be appearing alongside Liz Covert of Ben Franklin's World, Rudyard Lynch of What If Alternative Histories, and about 40 other great content creators. I personally have to create a 20-minute talk before a little Q&A to the theme of escape, and frankly, I have no idea what I'm going to talk about, and I'm mildly terrified. Ideas on a postcard. However, you will also get access to 24 hours of content in four simultaneous streams, so there's going to be loads of great content to discover and you can interact with your favourite show hosts and fellow fans. So that'll be fun. Tickets are $30 but are available for $20 as an early bird special. Just use the code ENGLAND when you buy tickets at intelligencespeechconference.com forward slash shop. See you there hopefully. Last time, we talked about the development of the Elizabethan Church to the end of the reign, including the challenge to the new Church of England from the godliest and Puritanism. But of course, there was another important group of people whose beliefs were challenged by the Elizabethan settlement, the followers of traditional religion. We've seen how in the 1560s, and to a degree much of the 1570s, the pressure on Catholics was manageable to them. The Elizabethan state did not pursue rigorously. Catholics assumed a great deal of latitude in putting in an appearance at church services, pressing the flesh, 
making sure plenty of photographs of them were taken for the parish magazine, and then practice their real beliefs in private. Church papists, as they came to be known. Meanwhile, hundreds of Marian priests had refused the Elizabethan settlement and had taken to the countryside to serve the needs of those desperate to hold on to their traditional practice or joined the households of the gentry who provided a place for people to come. The story of the 1570s is the story of how that leeway came to close, the turning of the screw to be replaced from the late 70s and 1580s by much tighter restrictions and persecution. Some of this came from international events through which we have already been, by which the ante with the Elizabethan state and the concerns of the Privy Council for security was upped, such as the war in the Low Countries, the St Bartholomew's Day massacre, and plots to kill Elizabeth or place Mary Queen of Scots on the English throne, such as the Ridolfi plot. Other pressures came from the actions of the Catholic Church hierarchy itself, with its stern injunctions on the faithful that Nicodemism, church papistry, was not acceptable, and the bull of Regnans in Excelsis releasing Catholics from their obedience to their queen and authorising her assassination. Together with the unavoidable problem that those Marian priests began to die out, and there was no obvious source of new priests to replace them. So, all of these pressures led to passionate demands from Parliament for extra legislation at the Parliament of 1571-2, for example. And some new persecuting legislation was passed, so it was made treason to call the Queen a heretic. Though, to be honest, if you'd done that about any monarch anywhere at any time, you'd almost certainly have been toast anyway. But more specifically, it became illegal to import Catholic objects like a wax disc called by the name of an Agnus Dei. But when Parliament passed a bill increasing recusancy fines for non-attendance at church by Catholics and for failure to receive communion at least once in the year, Elizabeth set her face against it and would not give it royal assent. Now while Burley probably supported this bill, and while all this foreign threat was worrying, defending the country by investing in the navy or establishing trained bands and local lord lieutenants, all this could be done, money permitting. And the Privy Council was relatively relaxed about itinerant Marian priests anyway, because look, before long, they'd disappear. So, through much of the 1570s still, the Privy Council kept their nerve and persecution was limited. In 1574, a number of high-profile Catholic priests, including Abbot Feckenham, were even released from prison. So confident was the Privy Council and the Church of winning this particular battle. What really changed the picture was the fear that English Catholicism might renew itself and form a substantial fifth column within the country, just waiting to rise up against the Queen and their Church. So this brings us to one William Allen. Educated at Oxford, Allen was part of the heady days of the Marian Counter-Reformation, until the arrival of Elizabeth meant that he would eventually join many others in exile in the Low Countries. 
but not before he had seen with his own horrified eyes how Catholics in Lancashire attended the new heretical church. In September 1568, Allen, probably foreseeing the issues growing in England of a lack of well-trained Catholic priests, established a school specifically to train English priests, attached to the newly established University of Douai, the English College. It would take a while to come to fruition, priests taking a while to mature in the casks of education, but Allen's English College would become a major force in English religious life, just as Allen would be a major force in the arguments of words between English Protestants and Catholics. Allen was an enthusiastic supporter also of the Jesuits and would be instrumental in the missions of two very famous names in the history of English Catholicism, Edward Campion and Robert Persons, famous people also, I should note, in the history of Stoner Park, just down the road from me. Allen worried that he would be sending the priests who graduated from his seminary into danger, but in the words of historian Eamon Duffy, persecution was fundamental to the spirituality he encouraged among the seminarians. The likelihood of martyrdom was one of the inducements that Allen offered to persuade Campion to go to England, and in the wake of his and his companions' executions, Allen declared that 10,000 sermons would not have published our apostolic faith and religion so winningly as the fragrance of these victims, most sweet both to God and men. Allen was part of that group who encouraged the Pope to publish Regnans in Excelsis to expiate heresy from England, which he feared was infecting neighbouring countries too, and wrote in 1584 in defence of the right of the Pope to depose monarchs. In 1573 then, not far from the time that the Privy Council were confidently releasing well-known Catholics from prison, the first fruit of Allen's orchard was ordained. In 1574, four of them crossed secretly to England. Another seven followed in 1575. In November 1577, the Privy Council approved the execution of one Cuthbert Main, a priest from Allen's English College. It wasn't a pretty death. It owed everything to the method of execution reserved for traitors from the Middle Ages. He was cut down while breathing, his heart was ripped out and his body quartered. In February 1578, two more Catholics went to their deaths on the gallows at Tyburn after describing Elizabeth as a heretic and schismatic. Precise wording which their interrogators had worked hard to get them to use, even threatening the rack when they looked like backsliding. And it was becoming clear that there were many more English in exile willing to devote their lives to supporting and saving the souls of their Catholic brethren in England, faced with a heretical onslaught. By 1576, the English college had 236 students at Douai, and William Allen had met with other English Catholics to consider the potential to persuade Philip II to invade England. In 1579, the English hospice in Rome was converted into a second seminary, and the move now began to see the full involvement of Jesuits. Allen was very positive about this additional focus and support, 
but the move did introduce the seeds of division into the English mission as a whole. While Jesuits saw their task as a missionary one of conversion, or Englander's virgin territory as it were, the more traditional English Catholics worked with the attitude to re-establish a church that had already existed in England for many centuries. By 1580, the English College had sent 100 Catholic priests into England. They travelled in disguise, of course, changing their names, clothes and horses along the way, desperately trying to preach and deliver the sacraments in the face of enormous risks and dangers, showing extraordinary courage and dedication. That same year, two Jesuits also travelled to England with orders to avoid politics, to preach to the converted and discourage waverers from going over to the dark side, whether or not the dark side happened to be offering cake at the time. These two Jesuits would echo through Catholic historiography, Edmund Campion and Robert Persons. I might pause at this time for a short historiographical digression on the basis that I had an email from one Chase telling me that he likes the personal digression, which I am now viewing as carte blanche to share with you the podcasting equivalents of a bunch of holiday snaps from my youth. For example, did I tell you that my sister went to India in a studenty kind of way and came back with 36 rolls of 36 exposure films in the days before digital this was and made me look at each and every one, usually accompanied by a full and detailed explanation. I can still remember the pig loos. Don't worry, I was just trying to panic you with this. The digression I need to have really is about the influence in English history of this period of religious conflict. The sharpness of religious conflict had already pretty much died away by the time I arrived on the earth in the swing 60s. But the way Mary and Elizabeth have echoed through the ages has had a profound impact on English history, with much of it written by the winners, it has to be said. The myth went as far as to suggest at one time that Catholicism was somehow alien to Englishness, a corrupted overlay on the ancient church. I hope that none of you who have followed this podcast could in any way view this as true, given the long and intimate relationship between the Catholic Church and England's history. But until at least Catholic emancipation in the 19th century, that message was a strong strand and the mythical association between Catholicism and tyranny even stronger. From the 1850s, though, the English Catholic community fought hard to re-establish a positive Catholic story, and in a way, I figure, that is now stronger than the Protestant story, because it seems to me, and I am busking here, that Catholics still seem much keener to tell their English story, whereas interest in the story of Protestantism seems now to be at a relatively low ebb. I am happy to be corrected, and after all, as you all know, I am interested in it and have gloried in telling you Thomas Cranmer's story, for example. But nonetheless, for a personal anecdote, I happened to go along to Stoner Park and met a member of the family, and I would find it difficult to imagine an Anglican with the sort of passion for their religious history that I saw there. Although certainly there was that passion in Victorian times, so in Oxford, for example, there's a big monument to the Protestant martyrs, which is slap bang in front of a small church. One day, as I sat on the steps of said monument, eating a sarnie, 
someone kindly explained to me that it owed its location to the fact that the church, in front of which it is slap bang, is a Catholic church. This counts, I think, as the Victorian version of a bit of bant. I guess the passion for both stories also has something to do with victimology, but the point I'm labouring to make is there are really no rights or wrongs here. Once upon a time, and up until not so long ago, the priests and Jesuits who landed in secret coves on England's coasts were seen as traitors or martyrs, depending on your viewpoint. In fact, there is a very good book I can recommend to you called God's Traitors by Jesse Childs about Catholics in the period. And I remember in the reviews and so on, and in the popular press and online, a blizzard of morally laden comment, dark period in our history, and that sort of thing, so on and so forth. Well, obviously, I wouldn't want to repeat this period, and knowing about religious conflict back then is riddled with very obvious messages for us about the way we should run our lives now. But the idea of visiting a value judgment from the 21st century back onto the players back then would seem to me to be barking mad. As we'll describe, Catholics, previously of course firm suppressors of religious dissent, now claimed that all they wanted was toleration. Protestants, including the Privy Council, had no way of distinguishing between Catholic religious dissent backed by Spain, France and the Pope from treason against the state. But in the historiography of English history, this period has a long and powerful influence on England's view of itself as a Protestant country, standing against a vast empire of hostile Catholic enemies that they equated with the repression of their religion. So, this conflict is important in a historical as well as a personal sense. Anyway, Edmund Campton was a London lad who went to Oxford and he eventually could not stand the thought that he accepted the royal supremacy and he duly fled England for the continent and became a novice in the Society of Jesus in 1573. In 1580, he joined another English Jesuit, Robert Persons, in a visit to see Pope Gregory. Persons was a Somerset lad who went to Balliol College in Oxford though he left with accusations of dodgy financial dealing as bursa. He joined the Society of Jesus in 1575 and was ordained in 1578. Campion and Persons were interested to hear from Gregory about the messages that they were to give to English Catholics about what leeway they had. For example, were they to get themselves a musket and head off to assassinate Elizabeth? No, said Gregory they should obey the Queen in civil matters. Unless, of course, there's a real chance of success in rebellion, in which case then yes, they must. So, not much reassurance when there's a massive armada bearing down on you then. Most of the answers were equally slippery, and the general ambiguity gave the poor English Catholics little comfort. For they, in the words of Sting, and possibly Homer, were caught between Scylla and Charybdis. In fact, this invited what became known as the bloody question. In the event of foreign invasion to enforce the bull of deposition, would they take the Pope's side or the Queen's? Now, Catholics were taught by their, their itinerant priests how to deal with such questions, how to evade them. But of itself, this did almost more harm than good. 
Burley, Walsingham and their pursuivants tried hard to create a line between Catholic priests, who for sure might be imprisoned and expelled, but not executed necessarily, and those on the other side of the line, who should be considered enemies of the state and the queen, who they should muller. And if they could not tell the difference between these two types of people, well, they would probably prefer the safer path of execution. Campion and Persons made it over to England in 1581. Honestly, they'd not really kept their journey that quiet. But they made contact with priests in London and attended a sort of Catholic synod as the locals asked for guidance. As it happens, the two Jesuits were even more inflexible than the Pope, not less, insisting on strict recusancy as being the only way to save their souls. They were to keep completely separate from the Protestants. Persons set up a secret press in London and demonstrated his expertise in polemicism, poking fun at the Protestant church for all its divisions and arguments internally. But he also laid down the law for Catholics, having no truck with the more comfortable idea from one other Catholic priests that God doth more regard the will and intention of the doer than the deed. Nope. Recusancy or nout was the Jesuit message. You'll get your reward in heaven. Which is something my mother used to say to me a lot, as it happens, though not normally threatening me with eternal damnation of my soul at the same time. As Campion toured round England, mainly in the south and Thames Valley, he carried with him a statement of his purely spiritual intentions. And he thirsted for debate, declaring that none of the Protestants nor all the Protestants living can maintain their doctrine in disputation. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Meanwhile, the tide of panic in England rose by degrees. Ireland was in the grips of Maurice Fitzgerald's revolt and the landing of Spanish troops at Smethwick. In Wales, Elizabeth Orton proclaimed she had visions and railed against the church and insisted on strict recusancy for Catholics. The Jesuits, although keeping their whereabouts hidden, were nonetheless accompanied by a blaze of publicity helped by the establishment of a press at Stoner Park, I might say. Have I mentioned that's in my hood? But it was too good to last. Campion was given up by an informer and arrested. We then get a remarkable piece of theatre. Campion continued to demand a disputation and the powers that be decided that it was more risky to refuse a debate and look for it than it was to risk getting their asses kicked in debate. And of course, they rigged the result by giving Campion no access to books and tag-teaming him. The debate took place over August and September 1581, and even the Protestant divines ruefully admitted that nonetheless Campion had done himself proud. Campion was then put on trial, convicted and executed in December 1581. He remained firm to the end that he was no traitor and was here only for spiritual reasons, and his courtesy and pious demeanour won him much respect, and persons, now back on the continent, 
exercised all his talents in spreading the word of Campion's martyrdom. Before being executed, Campion was submitted to judicial torture. Now, the English had always been rather proud of the fact that, unlike in most of the rest of the Europe under the Roman law system, torture was not allowable under common law outside exceptional circumstances. Torture must be approved by the monarch or the Privy Council and it must not be used to discover the truth, which was how it was used in Roman law to assemble evidence. Common law judges mistrusted the evidence gained under torture, which seems reasonable, it has to be said. So why was torture used? The man who had undertaken the torture on Campion was one Thomas Norton, denounced by his Catholic adversaries as the Rackmaster. Norton wrote a detailed refutation of the accusation and managed to sound genuinely hurt by the accusations. He hadn't carried out the torture himself, he said. He had gone through due process with six members of the Privy Council signing the authorisation. And thirdly, he wrote that none was put to the rack that was not first by manifest matter known to the council to be guilty of treason. There was no innocent tormented. A historian whose crumbs I am not worthy so much as to wave at with a hoover describes this as a circular argument. But in fact I disagree a bit with said eminent historian if I may be so bold Norton was right in his lights. Not even Campion would argue he wasn't guilty of the recusancy laws, though he did argue over his designation as a traitor. Campion was guilty all right. The torture was to get him to reveal his accomplices and contacts. Now, I doubt that was any comfort to Campion, of course, nor does it make it any less inhumane. But Norton had a point when he said torture was not in pursuit of evidence and only conducted on the guilty. Close to 500 people were questioned as a result of the torture and the members of the Stoner family, amongst others incidentally, were forced to flee. While we're on the matter of torture then, between 1540 and 1640, 81 documented cases of torture occurred in England. The majority were Jesuits, priests and recusants, though the last one to be tortured officially in England, one of the two people tortured under the reign of Charles I, was a radical Protestant apprentice boy. Of the 81 cases in those hundred years, 53 of them were tortured under Elizabeth, and this nasty statistic gives further evidence where it needed of the panic gripping the English state. One more point on torture before we move on. There was one other form of torture. I think I have told you this before, actually, but remorseless repetition is the mother of education, or so my teachers at school thought anyway. Under common law, you were required to enter a plea. If you refused to plead, you could be pressed to force you to plead. Pen forte et dure, this was called. The reason why some brave souls took this approach and died because of it was because without a plea they couldn't be found guilty, and their possessions and assets could therefore not be seized, and so their families would not suffer. The last case of this was 1741, and from 1827 a non-plea was assumed to be a plea of not guilty. But in our Elizabethan period, very notably, one woman was pressed to death for refusing to plead in response to an accusation of harbouring Catholic priests, 
This was a butcher's wife of York called Margaret Clitheroe. She's one of the few examples of an ordinary person put to death for their Catholic religion. An important example, actually, not just for the horror of it and her courage, but because it indicates that in Elizabeth's reign, recusancy ran beyond what would later be its core in the gentry. The Privy Council were without doubt rattled as the waves of priests kept coming. Some more statistics for you at this point then. During Elizabeth's reign, there were about 800 English seminarians trained or in training. 471 were active in England at some point during her reign. 130 priests were executed for their faith and 90 of their lay supporters also executed. Of course, the Catholic world was outraged by the execution of Campion and indeed other priests. But England was in the grip of a European trend of the hardening of confessional boundaries, accentuated by the Counter-Reformation and by Calvinism. There was little room for any suggestion that Catholic and Protestant persecution was entirely parallel. So, for example, one John Hamilton, accused in 1582 of Catholicism and treason, proudly declared of his pursuit of Protestants in Mary's reign that he was Bonner's man and helped to set the fire to the faggots to the most that were burned in Smithfield. He yet rejoices to think how they fried in the flame and what service he had done God in furthering their death. There didn't appear then too much room for sympathy on the front line and I suppose even now you might argue that the likes of Campion or Cuthbert Maine at least knew full well what they were getting into. Not so the ordinary folks or even the grander order of Catholic who had no or limited control over events. So Catholics were caught in this appalling conflict of loyalties. On the one hand, their history, tradition and nationality demanded they give their allegiance to the state and to their monarch. On the other hand, their church, which also held their loyalty in this world and the next, demanded that they withhold that loyalty. As the 1580s progressed then, the pressure on all concerned mounted. In 1581, Parliament finally succeeded in getting Elizabeth to agree to harsher recusancy legislation in what became known as the Act of Persuasions. It became treason to reconcile anyone to the Catholic faith. The financial penalties for not attending church rose to the crippling level of £20 a month. The fine for hearing a mass was the frankly gopping 200 marks. The Act made play to maintain a difference between those priests who came simply to succour existing Catholics, they were still breaking the law, but they were subject to imprisonment only, and those who came to convert, who were traitors subject to a traitor's death. In practice, of course, it was pretty straightforward to represent any foreign priest as a traitor under the rules of the Act, if such was what you wanted to do, and in many cases it was. It would be very useful to be able to get inside of the heads of the parties in this vital and fundamental dispute. And with spectacular and spooky luck, we kind of can. In 1583, December, Burley himself wrote a piece laying out his views before the world against the background of Norton's outraged defence of his actions. The rising wave of seminary priests, 
anti-Catholic legislation, the steady stream of plots against the life of the Queen and all. But maybe he also had in his mind an interview he'd recently had with a recusant. The committed Catholic in question was Lord Vokes, who had been discovered helping and harbouring Campion. Vokes wanted desperately to be restored to the Queen's favour and asked to be spared his fine for recusancy too. His words, relayed by Burley to the Queen, highlighted the jam in which so many Catholic gentry found themselves, as Vokes required most humbly to be forborn to be compelled to come to church. Not for that I should do so in contempt of Her Majesty or her laws, but that my conscience only, and nothing else, as not thereto well persuaded did stay me. For many Catholics, this was their dilemma. They felt unable to accept Elizabeth's deal, show outward compliance with my religious settlement and the rest is up to you, but yet they still desperately wanted to play their traditional role in society and saw themselves as utterly loyal to their monarch, as all the history and tradition in which they were so proud demanded. The striking thing about Burley's letter, actually, to his Queen, was how sympathetic towards Vokes it was. But the fire of Burley's hatred for Catholicism burnt as brightly as Alan's hatred of England's church and her heretic Queen. Both were relentless in the struggle, but Burley, and probably Alan too, could also see beyond it to the human side of the struggle. Away from the numbers and lists of legislation, everyday life might well have been very different. But for the moment, in 1583, Burley had a job to do, and that was to be utterly clear about why Elizabeth's government was taking the approach it had taken and why it was absolutely justified. The execution of justice, then, was a pamphlet written by Burley to the world, doing that very thing, filled with Burley's passion. He expresses his loyalty to the Queen, his hatred of rebels. In this, he was entirely in step with his time, of course. Rebellion was an offence against God, not simply a form of protest. Treachery in England and Ireland, he wrote, had been stirred up by the devil, the father of rebels. There was no matter of conscience going on here, in his view. Those who stood against the Queen were traitors. Full stop. End of debate. The ball, my friend, is in the back of the net. The well-built lady is singing. He was clear that the Pope lay behind this conflict, threatening Elizabeth's subjects to break their natural allegiance to their Queen. He denounced the priests who came to England as seedmen in their tillage of sedition, in secret seeking to persuade the people of his absolute authority over all princes and countries, threatening to provoke a horrible uproar and a manifest destruction of both the realms of England and Ireland. In short, it might be said, to use what I now understand from Salic is a Danish expression, that as far as the Jesuit protestations of innocence went, Burley was convinced that there was an owl in the fen. Something fishy going on, a plot, an owl in the fen. Indeed, he suspected there might be an entire parliament in the fen. Burley's reasoning went that the claims of priests like Campion that they were simply unworldly religious men was disingenuous tripe. For Burley, 
They were the Queen's mortal enemies. To bring down the church was to bring down her and her kingdom. He made two key points. That because of this fact, the priests sentenced to death had been so because they were traitors, not because of their faith. And secondly, that Elizabeth had dealt fairly with those who had refused to submit to her religious settlement. He gave a bunch of examples. The treatment of the Marian bishops in particular allowed to retire into private life rather than to be burned. And he rolled out numbers to help him too, contrasting the 60 Catholic martyrs with 400 killed under Mary's reign. Burley, of course, was a little previous. That number would rise before the reign was out. By 1596, 96 Catholic priests and 36 lay people had been executed. The execution of justice explains why, in the minds of the Privy Council, those priests executed were done so for treason, because to seek to destroy the uniformity of Elizabeth's church was to seek her own destruction, and to support a foreign prince in the Pope or the Spanish king that sought her death was clearly treason. William Allen, meanwhile, was unconvinced, and he published a reply in a true, sincere and modest defence of English Catholics. The priests that died were martyrs. Prosecutions under treason law were just for show only, and it was right and proper for princes to acknowledge the spiritual authority of the Pope. Queen Mary's burnings were simply the rightful punishment for heretics. This sounds like a complete missing of minds. No common ground here, although both were of course making similar arguments in reverse. The notable thing about the exchange demonstrates that publicly at least, the likes of Burley and Allen were playing for keeps. They were playing for total victory, for the prize of uniformity. But historian Peter Marshall makes the point that both of them in the background were being forced to acknowledge a new truth. Whereas they had inherited the idea of the indivisibility of truth, conversations such as those Burley had carried out with Vox indicated a pragmatic recognition that religious minorities might just have to be accommodated. In July 1584, William, the Prince of Orange, Protestant leader of the increasingly desperate struggle against Catholic Spain, was assassinated. Philip was openly delighted. Plots against the life of the Queen had been discovered too. An individual called James Somerville and the Throckmorton plot that we'll find out about in some future episode. In October, Burley presented a document called The Instrument of an Association for the Preservation of the Queen's Majesty's Royal Person to the Privy Council. It was quite a remarkable idea, a concept probably half-inched from the Scots, of a bond made between colleagues to pursue specific objectives. The bond of association, as it became called, required all to swear to protect the Queen's life with their own, including being prepared to inform on friends and neighbours if required. So, a bit like a Covid epidemic then. Signatories to the bond swore to pursue any perpetrators of the Queen's death to the very grave. They also swore that if Elizabeth was killed, Mary of Scotland, specifically, would be executed, whether she was guilty or not. So much for the rule of law, then. Let's roll in the rule of the mob. The bond was accompanied by a solemn oath 
made on the Gospels. The bond of association did not just stay within the Privy Council. It spread and indeed was promoted countrywide throughout society and people of all sorts came forward to swear and to sign. The justices in Yorkshire reported that they had taken signatories from such of the meaner sort of gentlemen and of the principal freeholders and clothiers about them as sued to be accepted into the society. Except he probably did it in a Yorkshire accent. And by late November, reckoned that they had at least 7,500 signatories there. The bond was a triumph of propaganda in one sense, creating a direct bond between the Queen and her people, the vast majority of who outside London would never have seen her. In some cases, signatories signed on their knees, almost like a religious ceremony. For Catholics, though, it was hideous. Here was another attempt to push a wedge between them and the communities they lived in, and that their families might have been part of for generations. In the following Parliament, the bond was essentially translated into law by the Act of Security of the Queen. In some ways, it's a rather revolutionary act, actually, because it implied that the godly community had the right to choose their own monarch by committing to execute Mary Queen of Scots, who would, if Elizabeth died, be her successor by right of hereditary. More legislation followed. In 1585, all priests trained abroad were ordered to leave the country in 40 days, and any found remaining would be automatically guilty of treason. Any laymen or women found to be harbouring priests would also be guilty of treason. Such legislation sought to coerce Catholics, but also to separate Catholics from their neighbours, and thus the confessional lines were drawn even more tightly inside the parish itself. There was but one man who spoke against this bill in Parliament, one William Parry of Flintshire, when he declared that there was nothing therein but blood, nothing but despair and terror to us all. His words didn't go down well. In fact, he was forced to apologise on his knees to the House, which is a nice trick. There are a few current MPs I think I might propose for the same thing. But William Parry's story is a little bit more complicated than that. An impoverished member of the gentry, he had various accusations hanging over him of burglary, rumours of sexual abuse. He fed to Paris now, Paris was a hotbed of English Catholic exiles, over 400 of them, often with families and servants in attendance, and they were a publishing machine for pro-Catholic texts, which were then smuggled secretly into England. In exile, Parry himself was received into the Catholic Church. By 1584, then, he was back in England and somehow became a member of this parliament. After his faux pas at Parliament of speaking up against Catholic persecution, an alleged accomplice came forward called Edmund Neville, accusing Parry of having plotted the assassination of the Queen. Parry confessed, then retracted. He was condemned to die a traitor's death and slung into the Tower. He then wrote a nice little note to Elizabeth with some friendly advice, along with a confession, that she should look after her Catholic subjects and restore relationships with her princely neighbours. And she should look after Mary, Queen of Scots, 
as Elizabeth's undoubted heir, a statement that would probably have wriggled around in Elizabeth's nasal passages something rotten. Parry died a traitor's death, the only serving MP of an Elizabethan parliament to do so, interestingly enough, if you're looking for a pub quiz question, though to be honest, it's a little more specific than which horse won the 1955 derby. But his story was so convoluted that no one was really sure if he was really traitor or spy. But at the end of the document, Parry wrote, And so farewell, most gracious and best-natured and qualified queen that e'er lived in England. Remember your unfortunate Parry, overthrown by your own hard hand. And last, and ever good, madam, be good to your obedient Catholic subjects. For the bad, I speak not. Well, in that lay the dilemma for both Catholics and the state, how to be a good subject and a good Catholic, how to understand and draw the difference between good and bad Catholics, and, of course, how to protect the Queen from assassination. Some of those dilemmas we will look at next time. Do not forget, gentle listeners, that Intelligent Speech is back, as you heard at the end of the show. Intelligent Speech is an online conference dedicated to connecting the best independent educational content creators with their listeners. And this year's conference takes place on April the 24th, 10 a.m. Eastern or 3 p.m. London time. Roll up, roll up. Tickets are $30 but are available for $20 as an early bird special. Just use the code ENGLAND when you buy tickets at Intelligent Speech Conference dot com forward slash shop thank you then everyone for listening good luck and have a great week Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 